Wilkinson here. Today, my guest is Rob Olander Crane, and he just moved to Palm Springs. What? Has COVID started, you said? Yeah, March of 2020. Okay, well, say hello to my people. Well, hello, people. <laughs> Where do you want to start? We had a little pre podcast chat so he's got a lot of stuff we could talk about oh god here. i have to be the person what's your, who what's picks your favorite? where we start um well talk, um, let's talk let's talk about you adopting talk about that first oh well i love talking about adopting so okay. i've been with my husband for 43 years now that's was another topic <laughs> yeah i was 19 when i met him um and i remember on our very first date we both mentioned to each other that we wanted kids. And you know, lo and behold, we moved to California in 87. And by 89, we had a four-year-old living with us. And it was originally a foster adoption. So he came in as a foster child for a couple months. And uh, at the point at which he became legally adoptable, we adopted him. And he's now 37. And he's married. And I have a four-year-old grandson. And they live in, uh, in Williamsburg, Virginia. And it's if anybody asked me, like, what's the best thing you ever did in your life? I would have to say adopting and raising a kid. It's just an amazing experience to watch a child grow under your care. How did he feel about having two dads? Uh, well, I'm not sure he ever realized that that was not something normal. different not than normal, normal right? <laughs> you know, he was four when he came to live with us, and he was in and out of foster care and with his biological mom for part of that time. But most kids forget their life before four years old, so... Most of his active memories are with us. And we asked him at different times, you know, what was it like in school with his friends when he told them that he had two gay dads? And he said, you know, we live in San Francisco. People are pretty cool. He was in mostly alternative schools where sometimes he was the only a kid who had two parents. Forget the fact that we were both men. Oh, right. So there were so many single parents. So I, I, I think because of where he grew up in San Francisco, it wasn't a big deal. I, I do remember one one time where he invited us to come to school for something. I think he was a teenager at the time. And he asked if one of us would pretend to be his uncle. <laughs> so oh, that really? Was, yeah. So, so there must have been at times, I don't know if it was embarrassment or concern. He didn't want everybody to know who we were. But I can't count more than one or two times that that happened. We were always the hub. We were the place where Craig and his friends always hung out, played basketball on the on the driveway. The sleepovers were sleepovers were always at our house. So I think for the most part, it was fine for him to have two men for parents. Any trauma with him growing up? Did he do anything crazy? For him or me? Well, either of you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if I'm being honest, he was he was an angel of a kid growing up. Until he hit 19, and then I think he hit his wall. Whatever that wall was, whatever he was trying to figure out, he he pretty much broke every adult rule possible. Um, really? The cops brought him home one night drunk, uh, you, you name it. And we ended up kicking him out, actually, at 19 years old, because I think we were helping him... You know, like enabling him, you like thought? It, yeah, yeah, enabling him, like paying yeah. his way. He had a place to live. He had food. He had safety. He had shelter. And he could just be doing whatever he wanted. And it took a year for him to kind of get his act together. But he eventually thanked us. He said, if you didn't kick me out, I'm not sure I would have ever gotten my shit together. Wow. So that that felt, must have been hard, though. It, well, it felt good after a year. But the day that we kicked him out, right. the moment he was out the door, we looked at each other and we said, now what? And what if something happens to him right. when and he's not there? I yeah. hate to say it, but we changed the locks on the door. 
the very first floor of our house had a window. And if he had climbed over the neighbor's yards and into our backyard, he could have smashed the window and come in the house. So we put a, a gate up on it. We were, we didn't know we were, this was such new territory for us. Right. Um, and of course, nothing happened. It was, it was our paranoia, but it took a good year until we developed a relationship with him again. And of course, now it's as if nothing had ever happened, but he thanked us. And as hard as it was, we did the right thing. Yeah, that would be hard. Yeah, well, you're a parent too, you know, right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, my worst story is my oldest when he was, I don't know, 20 or 21, rolled his car end over end going 65 miles an hour. Wow, he was... And was ejected through the windshield and landed 40 feet from the car on his head. That was an ordeal. Wow. Was yeah. he, he must have been in the hospital for a oh, while. Yeah, yeah, he yeah he was in ICU for a long time. Wow, but. that I don't know how I would deal with that as a parent. I mean, I, I my son got hit in the head with a wooden block brush at uh, daycare after school, and he had a huge gash. We took him to the hospital, and he needed twenty three stitches. That's how big this gash was. It's really deep, and he's on the operating table with that that blue cloth over his head that keeps him uh, the sterile blue cloth. Right. And I'm holding his hand and looking under the cloth to see him, and I'm ready to faint watching them do the stitches. And of course, he's like, "Yeah, this, it was nothing for him." Right. The patient advocate came in the room and walked up to him and said, "Craig, how you doing?" And he said, "I'm fine, but would you check in with my father? I think he's about to faint." <laughs> How old was he? He was probably 12, 11 or wow. 12. I, oh, I'm wow. <laughs> telling you, what parents go through, we deserve medals just for getting through every day. Right. From that accident, I had similar thing. They were yeah. trying to sew him back up in the, the whatever they used, stringer uh, or whatever it was, wouldn't stay in. You're making me cringe just yeah, thinking about what that must bad. have looked like and how that felt. Yeah, yeah it was really bad. Yeah, and you have to be strong. You don't have a choice. You have to be strong for your kids. But. That was, ah. that was probably the most traumatic moment for me. <laughs> and uh, you get along with your grandson? Oh, I adore him. Four years old. He looks like he's six. Very verbal. Loves sharks. That was That's like his big thing. Everything's about sharks. Wow. He, yeah. I just wish I could see him more often. He's 3,000 miles, well, 2,500 miles away. We don't get to see them that often. And how's the daughter-in-law? I like her too. Good. She's been, she's, I actually, you know, I was talking about what happened to Craig when we kicked him out. She's part of the reason he got his act together because he met her not too long after we le- he left or we kicked him out. And uh, she's a very traditional woman. She has a very traditional family. And Craig had to like toe the line in order to be in a relationship with her. In fact, her uncle wouldn't let the two of them in a room alone until he really trusted Craig. So, really? Yeah, Craig really had to like, get his act together. So I, I really appreciate what she brought to him. And, you know, she gave me a grandson. What, right. what could be wrong with that? So how did her traditional family do with Craig's two fathers? <laughs> well, I think someone in her family may, may be gay. And I think most of them know about that. So I think they were already kind of primed. But so they have a kind of a don't ask, don't tell with that guy. I'm guessing I've met all of them. They're delightful people. They've been nothing but wonderful to us. And, you know, I think we gave them a grandchild. Right. 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 So I think that regardless of what they might feel, they've never if they feel anything other than the joy of having the in-laws there, they've never mentioned it. Yeah, They're really delightful people. So let's rewind here. So you've been with. (laughs) What's your husband's name? Jason. Jason. So you've been with Jason 43 years. 43 years. I call it a life sentence, right. but for all the right reasons. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I, I even wrote a song about it. 
Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear the words to it. Is it? What, how oh God, I can't. I can't do the whole the, thing. I'll, what's I'll, the chorus? The, the chorus goes, um, "I got dealt a life sentence, but I didn't do the crime. There was hardly ev- any evidence, but I chose to serve the time. They couldn't find one fingerprint, uh, but I gladly paid the fine. I got dealt a life sentence. So glad that he is mine. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> and then we, in our chat beforehand, I think I did the calculation. So that would be like. What what did I say? One hundred and thirteen years and, <laughs> yeah. and straight year marriage years. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I don't care who you are, straight, gay, something else. Forty three years is a long time, and relationships have ups and downs, and joy and and fear, and it's a roller coaster ride. But he was the right. Somehow, I found the right guy when I was nineteen, and that makes it all worthwhile. The good and the bad and the ugly. So you were how old were you when you came out? Uh, the year before I was 18. So you had one year of, <laughs> were you frisky for a year or what? <laughs> uh, uh, maybe more than a year. I don't know. De- oh. Definitely for, for the year. I okay. dated a couple other guys had, I mean, right. lots of sex, of course. You know, when you find the right guy, you find the right guy. But I did tell him, I'm not going to make a commitment to you until I graduate. So he had to hang around for three years, which he did. Um, I, we, I, we were dating. I saw him all the time, but I wasn't, I wasn't monogamous at all with him during that time. I wanted to see other people. I, I, I needed to like figure out what the world was all okay. about, but it was so clear to me and no matter who else I met that, that Jason was the right one. And that when I graduated that I would move in with him and we would start our life together. And that's exactly what we did. Sounds good. I'm lucky. That's, and where were you for most of that time? In New Jersey, central New Jersey. I went to Rutgers (laughs) and we stayed in there for another seven years, I think, and worked in Manhattan. And then we moved to California and two years later we adopted our son. And, uh, so are you retired now? Yeah. What, so what did you do (laughs) work-wise? Can we just talk about retirement? I love retirement. (laughs) Uh, under uh, retirement is definitely underrated. I love this. Um, but I was, I was in retail for my entire career. I started in the business, but after a few years, what I realized I really loved was helping people improve their performance. So I got into human resources, spent a lot of time in what most people call training, what we call in the business learning and development, and eventually uh, into the larger suite of, of sort of people management or talent management, as we like to call it. And I, I ended my career on, on a real high note for the, for the last 10 years, I focused on something called performance management the process that most people in corporations hate, which is goal setting at the beginning of the year, some kind of feedback throughout the year, a review, like usually a written review at the end of the year, and then some kind of rating that turns into your your raise or your bonus. Most people hate that process. I hated that process. It was an awful process where I worked. But I was asked to blow it up in the last company I worked for. And I did that. Blow and it up in what way? Make it like better. Like get rid of it, blow it up, well, or improve it? Get Improve it. Get rid of what wasn't working, what and wasn't driving work. performance and engaging employees, and turn it into something that would. And we were really successful in what we did. We, we talked a lot about it. Harvard discovered what we did and asked us to do a business case for their graduate school program. So to this day, even though I'm retired, I still get invited to MBA programs across the country to speak about it. It got a lot of press and a lot of companies have modeled their changes to performance management based on what we did. And I, I say this all the time when I speak. The very first thing I say is, I want to obliterate this awful process from the face of the earth. And I'm here to speak about it because I want you to take the torch and do it for your company. Huh. 
So what did you change? Oh, God, you really want to go down this road, this technical road? Nutshell. Okay, in a nutshell. So we got rid of ratings. No more was someone given the A, the B, or the C. No more grades. We got rid of anything written. There was no review at the end of the year. Now, if if you were on corrective action any time during the year, that was a written process. Uh, But if you were the 98% of the people in the organization that were performing well, Nothing written. You could, now, as an employee, you could write something down. As a manager, you could write something down. But the corporation, the company, wasn't asking for anything. Uh, but we did a couple other things that were really, the, I think, the innovative parts of this. We adopted a talent philosophy that was very different. It was a philosophy that said everybody can get better. Everybody can grow. And you might not be familiar with the actual concept. It's called growth mindset. As a Stanford professor who did some studies mm. on kids and not, found- not familiar found a particular mindset that drives performance. So when I read this, I thought, this is amazing. I want everybody in my company, doesn't have to be a high potential person, doesn't have to be the best performer. I want everyone to be able to get better at whatever they're doing, whatever their craft is, whatever their passion is. And we need to create an environment where that can happen. So we adopted this growth mindset philosophy throughout the company and really proud of how that changed the culture at the company I was working for. It was really a a different place because of that. That was one big thing. And the second was that we changed this awful thing called feedback into something that people could actually hear and accept and do something with. Um, Most people's experience in a company with feedback is come into my office, shut the door, don't ever do that again, or you're fired, right? It's it's (laughs) a punitive thing. And it's only delivered when the manager kind of has no choice. Like you have to do something about this. We turned it into something that was a regular, everyday occurrence. When the manager wanted to give feedback, they asked three questions. What'd you do well? And they shut up and listen. Where'd you get stuck? And they shut up and listen. And what will you do differently before you ever do that thing again? Now, they get involved in the dialogue, but the first person who gets to sort of empty their cup is the employee. Right. The manager gets to learn a lot about that person's perspective, the per- perception of their own performance. So, you know, if I'm asking you, what'd you do well? And you say three, these three things, I can say, yeah, I saw those two and you're missing one. Here's the fourth thing you did well. Then if I say, where'd you get stuck? The first time you do it, you might not be so open and honest because you think it's, you're going to get slammed. Right, but right. as you get more comfortable and it feels more like a coaching relationship, you're more inclined to be really honest. And I get to learn about all the places where you feel you're not performing. And that's where I can jump in as a coach and help you. Sometimes I might even say, you're being way too hard on yourself, right? Let that one go. But the most important question is the last one. What are you going to do differently in the future? That's the growth mindset question. That's about building future capability. And when we combine that with growth mindset and the changes, structural changes that we made, we created a very different model that was really successful. That's why Harvard was interested in it. That's why other companies asked me to come and speak all the time. So thanks for asking that question. I never, yep. I never thought on this podcast we'd be talking <laughs> about not? that, but I'm we really, talk about everything here. I'm really proud of it. And yeah. it was, it was the icing on a, a you know, a 40 year career. It was, right. I went out on a high note, which felt really good. So have you taken any of that into your relationships? <laughs> not, not necessarily with your husband, but uh, <laughs> do you apply any of that with people now or what? Yeah. Uh, I, I, that feedback model is really helpful. You and I were talking earlier that I opened a, um, a dance space here so that right. I love country Western two-step. I love teaching it. Um, and with the team that I work on, when we are ready to sort of evaluate what we're doing, we use that model. We say, well, what are we doing well? 
Where are we getting stuck? What mm-hmm. should we be doing differently next time? And that's, uh, you know, it's a simple three questions, but it's really powerful. And it doesn't just focus on what, uh, focus on what we screwed up. Because right. there are things you're doing well that you want to do more of. And there are things that you're not doing well that you want to change. More rounded discussion. Well, since you brought up the dance, let's talk about that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so how long have you been involved in that? Well, I've been dancing and teach. Well, I've been dancing for about 12 years and I've been teaching for about seven. But what's interesting about it for me is I hated country music growing up. I thought country music was stupid, twangy. It was all about gun racks and pickup trucks and hound dogs and beer cans. And I found it to be misogynist and racist and homophobic. And I thought I could never be around country anything. Right. And then I was on a business trip and I had nothing to do one of the nights I was there. And it, so I went to the gay bar in town. Oh, and they had country dancing. And they were doing country Uh-oh. night, right? <laughs> and the first thing I noticed is the country music. And I said, oh, God, why is it the one night I'm here at country night? But then I noticed they were dancing. Men were partner dancing. And I thought, that's hot. So I sat and I watched for a while and I tolerated the country music and never thought about it again. Were they shadow dancing? You know, I I don't know. I I didn't even know what shadow dancing was back then. All I know is that men were dancing with men. And I thought, I would like to learn how to do that. But again, I let it go. Come back to San Francisco, which, by the way, has like the premier gay country Western club in the country. And it was a mile from my house. I could almost walk there. Well, that's convenient. But I didn't know about it. And a friend of mine one day says, hey, we should go country two-stepping. And I said, what? said, well, there's this place in San Francisco. It's called Sundance. We should go two-stepping. And I said, no, no, I really I, I really don't like country music. And he said, no, you should come. You should come. And I said, well. Wait, you saw the gay guys but, dancing but, and right, you but don't I like I, it? I didn't, I, like, didn't connect <laughs> it, right? Okay. So he bugged me for like two years, two years. And finally, my husband was traveling and I had nothing to do. And my friend Jeff said, come on, you're coming country dancing because I'm not taking no for an answer. Literally, like three minutes, we drive down the street and we're at this place and I take a lesson and I fall in love with it. Wow. And so I danced like eight hours a week for like two years. I have more country music on my playlist on my iPod than than anything. Um, And after about four years, I thought, you know, I I could teach this because I did learning and development with adults at work. I could translate that to this dance. So I started to learn how to teach, and now I teach in San Francisco, I teach in Seattle, I teach in Palm Springs, I've taught, in, I've taught everywhere in the country. And I love it. I love country music. We go to the Country Music Festival in Nashville every year. I mean, that's how much I've become a fan of country music. And, and in all fairness, country music has changed. It's a little bit more uh, you know, skewed toward the popular. Right. It feels more like anything you might hear on a, a regular radio station, not a country station. But uh, I was a big- about my favorite song my dog eats corn i miss that stuff I'm my kidding. dog eats corn no <laughs> you know red solo cup is about as close as i get right. to a corny country song right red right. solo cup but there's some really beautiful country music out there but i love teaching and i was teaching here at trunks which is uh was a gay bar in cathedral city until earlier this year and they closed and there was no place for gay country western dancing in the valley so a few friends and i got together and we decided we were going to rent some space in a in a dance studio in the city in palm springs and now we dance on friday nights at a place called palm springs country dance association so if you're interested in country dancing that's or a if long you already name. do it yet yeah, have a long you thought name. of shortening it 
<laughs> yes, we are actually going to change the name. So it, it might be different come January. Right. But for now, it's Palm Springs Country okay. Dance Association. We, are, we have a Facebook presence. So if you're interested in country dancing or if you already do it and you want a place to dance... Yeah, we'll we'll put all those links in the uh, in the in the notes. That's wonderful. We're, that way, they can find it. They don't have to grab a pencil right now. So that's been going pretty well. It's going really well. I, I love it. And when you get to do something you're really passionate about, I mean, it's a, this is a full time job for me, but I love doing it. So it it's not a burden. I, I so the work is full time. You're not getting paid like a full time oh, job, though. No, <laughs> I'm not getting paid a penny for doing this. Right. But I'm working. I'm working harder now than I think I ever worked because. It's mine, right? right? I mean, I have I have partners, but if we don't, if we're not successful, it falls apart. It's not like working for a corporation where if I make a mistake, they might fire me. Right. This is for us to own. Right. Um, so when things go well, we you know we get the accolades, and when things don't go well, we got to fix them. So Love two doing stepping it. or uh, line dancing, what's your so what's your favorite? We do we do all of it at uh, at. Um, Palm Springs Country Dance Association, that long but name. But what is your favorite? But I love I love partner dancing. You do? I, the, to not be able to touch someone when I'm dancing is like, why am I even here? I do some line dancing, but I love either leading or following and having someone in my arms or being in someone's arms to some beautiful song. And I'm also a singer, so when I... Um, dance, I'm often singing the song because now I know all these songs. And like, that's my sweet spot, to be with a great partner Wonderful song, singing, dancing. It's heaven. Remember, I used to do that up in, well, I did it at Trunks for a while till my knees blew out, but um, up in Seattle, I used to do it. And my, one of my exes got me into that. So you went to the cuff? Yes. Yeah. I've danced at well, the cuff. Well, actually, the, um, what's the one before the cuff? Oh, that's probably before my time. The Timberline. Oh, Timberline. Yeah. I've yeah, heard yeah. that name. That was, the Timberline was fun. Yeah. Yeah, that was fun. But the cuff has those columns in the middle. Oh, I know, you're slamming a door. <laughs> Who I like, designs a dance this? floor with columns? <laughs> <laughs> and there's no signs around them or anything. No, just like, I bam. remember the first time I went there, I thought, okay. Oh. And we were learning a line dance, and that's even harder with that column there. Like, right. So it oh. is what it is. Well, I remember there was uh, some version of Amazing Grace that was sung fairly fast. Yep, I know exactly that, what you're talking that about. That was so fun. I love that. Yeah, we play that every once in a while. Do you? At, at, uh, here in Palm Springs. What else are we going to talk about? We can talk about Palm Springs. Am I moving here? Never thought yeah, I'd actually really, be I don't able... really care about that. Oh, okay. Just kidding. <laughs> so why did you move here? Well, I actually never thought we would live here full time. Um, we lived in San Francisco for 34 or five years. I always felt like that was home. But unfortunately, my, my husband was diagnosed with Parkinson's a couple of years ago. And I, I knew nothing about Parkinson's when that diagnosis happened. I didn't know what the future was going to look like. And I don't think he did either. But one of the things that we began to notice was that Jason had difficulty walking up and down stairs. And our house in San Francisco. Well, San Francisco, hello. <laughs> our house was on five floors. To go from wow. any room to any other room. It wasn't a big house. It was just that it was stacked. Right. Um, and there was going to become a point in time for him, maybe even for me. I mean, I'm 61, right. um, where stairs is just going to be difficult. And we thought, you know what? It's time to get out of that house, sell it, move down here. Because our house is the same size, but it's flat. It's one one floor. And that's been much easier for him and honestly, much easier for me. So we, you know, we retired a little bit early and came down here so that we could relax a little bit and we could be in a place where he could be a little bit more healthy, Right. I think. So the, the wonderful thing for me is that he's really positive all the time. And 
he still goes to the gym with me six days a week. And on the seventh day, we walk for two and a half miles in the living desert in Palm, in Palm Desert near our house. So he's doing everything right to prolong the, the decline that happens when you have Parkinson's. Um, and of course, I see, I see those changes. I see him getting slower. I see him having less security in his walking. You know, his balance is, is, is off. His voice is quieter. It's harder for me to hear him, stuff like that. But, um, but this was definitely a good place for us to come. The warmer weather, the flatter house, the calmer lifestyle. And certainly, it, you know, it was a coincidence that we moved here the weekend of the lockdown back right. in March of 2020. But it made it for a really safe place to be during the height of COVID. Do you stay here in the summer? We do, actually. We're kind of crazy. We like heat, but we, we do some traveling as well. Right. We get out of Dodge. I think if, if, it, if it wasn't for the traveling, it might get a little onerous, you know, four months of really, really hot temperature. But if I'm picking, I'm taking hot over cold any day. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. I mean, right now it's what? 55, it's, 60 it's degrees a little bit here. Chilly here. And yeah. my feet are freezing. Like right. I, I want, I want my Uggs. <laughs> yeah. Are you in a condo or a house? We're at, we're in a house. Do yeah. you have a pool? We have a pool and a, and a spa, so we can. That's good. We can swim. Not this time of year because we don't heat it. But you don't want to pay that nine hundred bucks to heat it I, a month. I don't. And you know, we put in <laughs> solar. We put in solar, so we don't pay for electricity anymore. But the heat for the pool is not solar; it's gas. So, right. Yeah, we're not going to heat it. Gotcha. Yeah, I'll turn the spa on though. Hang right. out there for half. Oh, an I hour. leave mine. Yeah, I got yeah. them. That's lovely. Yeah, during the cooler times, like twice a day, usually I'm in there. Yeah, so. I forgot to. There was a meteor shower here the other other night, like Tuesday night, I think it was. And I totally forgot about. it. I would have been perfect to just hop in the spa and sit back and look up at the stars. Oh wow, I I didn't even know about. Yeah, that. Yeah, it was supposed to be the best one of the year. I can't remember the name of it, but yeah, I totally well, forgot. So what's on your agenda now for? Your future. For life? Yeah. <laughs> well. We got the dance thing going. Yeah, got the dance thing going. I, I started, I mentioned that I, I, I'm writing music, and that's another big passion for me. I love, I've been a musician all my life. I put myself through college uh, singing, but obviously other people's songs, like think James Taylor, Joni Mitchell, that kind of right. contemporary folk, as I call it. And I, I, I've i performed on and off for years at weddings and stuff like that, just mostly for fun. But I never thought I could write and anytime I tried, not not music, but lyrics. And every time I tried to write lyrics, they they were so pedestrian. Like like I thought, who would ever care about what I'm writing? And then um, a couple of years ago, my favorite band, the Milk Carton Kids. Ever hear of them? Mm, that'd be negative. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever mentioned this band to anyone who ever heard of them. They're kind of like a modern day Simon and Garfunkel. So okay. if you like Simon and Garfunkel, you'd like right. the Milk Carton Kids. They write kind of serious, sad songs. Uh, two guitars, folk guitars, and beautiful harmony. They're just amazing vocalists. They put on a songwriting camp in the Catskills of all places, not too far from Woodstock. And I thought, I can't go to that. I can't write music. But I went to their website like five times and I kept reading and it said, you don't have to write music. You could just come and hang out. You don't even have to perform if you don't want to. You can just be a fly on the wall and listen to other people performing. And I thought, you know what? I owe it to myself to go and see what this is all about. If nothing else, they they performed, the Milk Carton Kids performed every night. I'd get three concerts with one of my favorite bands. Like, what could be wrong with that? Right. Like, with 40 other people in a small room. Like, so I went and I followed their process. They had a very simple sort of outline and, and a recommendation and how to write music. And 
They sent us out the first day to sit for an hour just to think about, like, well, they, they call it the nugget. Like, what's the what's the message you're trying to get across in the song? And for some reason, a Irish drag queen's text talk came to mind, and I decided <laughs> to write a song about it. And not only did I get the nugget, but I'd written about half of the lyrics and had some of the melodies in my head in that hour. I don't know wow. what happened. So uh, Panty Bliss is the drag queen. She lives in Dublin, and she did a TED Talk, I don't know, five, six years ago, about how angry she is about the fact that she can't hold her lover's hand. So um, I don't know what her real name is, what the, what the, but he, he can't hold the hand of his boyfriend on the street without being nervous about it, without questioning what might happen. Would somebody say something? Would there be some violence against right. her? And I thought, wow, I feel exactly the same way. I've always been concerned. Even in San Francisco, my husband and I have been walking down the street and some crazy person will yell, fucking faggots. Can I say that on this podcast? Yeah, you can. Okay. Um, <laughs> and I remember when that person did it in San Francisco, I turned to him and I said, do you, do you know who you are? This is San Francisco. But still- it, You said that to the person I said that to that? the person. But I, it, I've never been able to just casually take the hand of my husband without wondering- who might be around, what might be around, what obstacle might be in the way of my happiness and my joy. And I'm kind of envious that straight people can do that without batting an eyelash. This very tender, simple expression of love and connection, they do without thought. Now, maybe there are some who are concerned, but for the vast majority of straight people, they don't think about that at all. And I have to think about it every time and that pisses me off. So that's what uh, Pandy Bliss's TED Talk was about, and that's what the song was about. So the title of the song is called Taken for Granted. Mm. And the, the chorus is, you know, don't take for granted what you have, holding hands when you're walking down the street, smile and laugh, fall in love, even get down on one knee. Just don't take that away from me, is kind right. of the essence of the song. Right. And I wrote that, like, most of it that first hour, and then I spent just a little bit more time that day, and then I didn't even think about it again. I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. I, I, I didn't understand what I had written. Like, I still was in that old mindset that this wasn't good enough. And then on the last day, I had about three extra hours with nothing to do, and that was the time everybody was supposed to work on finishing up their songs. So I sat back down with it again, and I finished the song, and I was playing it just to myself outside in the, one of the grassy areas. And one of the other uh, musicians came over and said, what are you working on? I said, well, I kind of wrote a song. And he said, well, let me hear it. And I played the song and he said, oh, my God, that song's amazing. You need to sing that tonight. I wasn't planning on singing it. But he insisted. And he got my name added to that night's list of singers. And I got a standing ovation for the song when I was done. Wow. Now, I don't know if it's a good song. Let's, these are all musicians. We were all supporting each other. Right. But I can't tell you how wonderful that felt. And that started my journey as a songwriter. So I've written two other songs since then. One was the 43 Years to Life, the one we, we talked about earlier. Well, if I do my screenplay or make my movie next year, <laughs> maybe I'll have you do some music in it. Well, there you go. I can do your <laughs> score, right? <laughs> there you go. You know, it, one of the really interesting things to me about writing music is that, and maybe other uh, creative people feel this way, I, and I didn't get this until after it was done, I created something that never existed before. Like it was that combination of words, that combination of notes, that song that I created wasn't there. And now, theoretically, it can never go away. It is always there. And there was this sort of magical moment for me when I realized that. And I don't know why that felt powerful to me, but 
I felt really good about what I had done and really proud of what I had written. Well, we're going to want to hear more from you. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we'll do a whole podcast with me singing my songs and narrating them. There you go. There you go. (laughs) So um, I usually ask this as we wind down. So what have you learned in your life that you'd like to pass on to my listeners? Oh, God. I have a favorite uh, quote that I learned in a coaching class that I took. And it it was sitting on the desk of the coach trainer. It said, uh, don't always believe what you think. And when I first read it, I I said, really? And then I thought about that. And that's really profound because I have all these assumptions about the world based on what I think. Right. And then someone comes along and changes my perspective. But until that moment that they changed my perspective, I thought I was right. Exactly. Don't always believe what you think. Be open to the fact that you might strongly think something's right and you may be 100% wrong. Yes, sir. Very true. <laughs> Crack of the whip. Don't always believe what you think. <laughs> Very good. Hey, well, thanks for coming in today. Oh, it's totally been my it was pleasure. Really Thank fun. you. I liked it.